Are you trying to decide if the institution of marriage is a worthwhile pursuit for you in your lifetime? To add, are you curious about the perspective and purpose of marriage from a secular viewpoint, in particular that of the Christian faith? Well, tune into this episode where we'll be discussing the book, The Meaning of Marriage, Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God, written by Timothy Keller and Kathy Keller. Hello, hello, this is Alicia Young, and welcome to Teach Me Freedom. This podcast is about learning how to live a freer life from authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. Those who have done it and who teach others how to do it as well, and what it feels like while applying those methods to our lives along the way. Every episode will deliver resources, anecdotes, and or reviews to support you in living a more freedom-filled life. Let's jump in. Hello, Freedom Finders, and welcome back to episode two of the third season of the Teach Me Freedom podcast, Marriage and Motherhood, Are They For Me? I'd like to begin by apologizing for quite a long hiatus. It was not intentional, but the factors behind it were commitments on time and not being real realistic about how long it takes to publish an episode which is so heavily based on reading, researching, and discussing a book. But also a larger part of that is perfectionism, really that desire to come up with a really good episode to kind of justify how long it took to put this one out. So clearly, it looks like I'll need to revisit the episode we did with Dave Ruel, where he talked about the ethics system and that process of DOA, delegate, outsource, and automate. And it's clear that I'm going to need to do some aspects of those with this podcast, especially with there being so many other things coming down the pipeline, which you'll hear about in later episodes. For today's book, The Meaning of Marriage, we'll be talking about what led to the interest in this book, some background about it, along with key ideas any critiques, if applicable, key takeaways, what's next for the podcast, and concluding remarks. Led to my interest in this particular book is the desire to learn more about what the purpose of marriage is, because as we've discussed on previous episodes, we're bombarded by different agendas and different sets of information, and I wanted to be intentional about the information that I'm taking in when it relates to this topic. So I wanted to learn the purpose of marriage, um, especially from the Christian faith, also with the hopes that this will teach me more about my faith and maybe increase the connection that I have to it. This book was written by Tim and Kathy Keller. At the time the book was published in 2011, they had been married for 37 years, 48 years at the time of this recording, which is helpful because it speaks to marriage longevity. It gives a little bit more weight to what they're sharing in this in this book. Um, and Tim, who's the main writer, part of his inspiration to write the book was because he was pastoring a church that had majority of single 
adults in attendance. And I think he said about 3,000 or 4,000. So he wanted to give the vision of marriage according to the Bible and provide a realistic perspective instead of one that's overly desirous or dismissive of marriage and also with the goal of using teachings within the Bible as a source of the information in the book. A quote which spoke to me was starting at location 181, which said, The Bible begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve and ends in the book of Revelation with the wedding of Christ and the church. Marriage is God's idea. It is certainly also a human institution, and it reflects the character of the particular human culture in which it is embedded. But the concept and roots of human marriage are in God's own action, and therefore what the Bible says about God's design for marriage is crucial. What God institutes, he also regulates. If God invented marriage, then those who enter it should make every effort to understand and submit to his purposes for it. We do this in many other aspects of our lives. Think of buying a car. If you purchase a vehicle, a machine well beyond your own ability to create, you will certainly take up the owner's manual and abide by what the designer says the car needs by way of treatment and maintenance. To ignore it would be to court disaster. Plenty of people who do not acknowledge God or the Bible, yet who are experiencing happy marriages, are largely abiding by God's intentions, whether they realize it or not. But it is far better if we are conscious of those intentions, and the place to discover them is in the writings of scripture. So that quote provides the context for the essence of the book. Now before going into the meat of this episode, so the key ideas and key takeaways, I'd like to start with a quote which is titled The Secret, and it's about how to make a marriage work. So this starts on location 630 and says, so what do you need to make marriage work? You need to know the secret, the gospel, and how it gives you both the power and pattern for your marriage. On the one hand, the experience of marriage will unveil the beauty and depths of the gospel to you. It will drive you further into reliance on it. On the other hand, a greater understanding of the gospel will help you experience deeper and deeper union with each other as the years go by. There, then, is the message of this book, that through marriage, the mystery of the gospel is unveiled. Marriage is a major vehicle for the gospel's remaking of your heart from the inside out and your life from the ground up. Now that you know the secret of how to have a successful marriage from a high-level view, let's go deeper into the key ideas that I took away from this book. There are four main key ideas, which are learning about the purpose of marriage, along with being informed about the history of dating and marriage, and the perception and expectations of marriage and marital partners, along with the role of sex in marriage and dating relationships. Starting with the purpose of marriage, there are many different purposes we've heard about. For example, providing a community and a safe container for raising children, marriage as a place to develop and mature our character, and marriage as a form of security, whether it be financial security or social mobility. However, Tim and Kathy state that although these are what our culture has deemed to be the purposes of marriage, one of the main points of marriage is to help us become our future glory selves. And this is explained further in a quote talking about our old self versus our emerging new self, which marriage helps us to refine. Starting on page 37, they state, you have an old self and a new self. 
Further information can be found in the scripture, Ephesians 4, verse 24. The old self is crippled with anxieties, the need to prove yourself, bad habits you can't break, and many besetting sins and entrenched character flaws. The new self is still you, but you liberated from all your sins and flaws. This new self is always a work in progress, and sometimes the clouds of the old self make it almost completely invisible. But sometimes the clouds really part, and you see the wisdom, courage, and love of which you are capable. It's a glimpse of where you're going. Within this Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It's to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in this journey you're taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse then should give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. Kathy often says that most people, when they're looking for a spouse, are looking for a finished statue when they should be looking for a wonderful block of marble. Not so you can create the kind of person you want, but rather because you see what kind of person Jesus is making. When looking for a marriage partner, each must be able to look inside the other and see what God is doing and be excited about being part of that process of liberating the emerging new you. This is by no means a naive, romanticized approach. Rather, it's brutally realistic. In this view of marriage, each person says to the other, I see all your flaws imperfections, weaknesses, dependencies, but underneath them all, I see growing the person God wants you to be. This is radically different from the search for compatibility. As we've seen, researchers have discovered that this term means we're looking for a partner who accepts us just as we are. This is the very opposite of that. The search for an ideal mate is a hopeless quest. This is also a radically different approach from the cynical or cold method of finding a spouse who can just deliver social status, financial security, or great sex. If you don't see your mate's deep flaws and weaknesses and dependencies, you're not even in the game. But if you don't get excited about the person your spouse has already grown into and will become, you aren't tapping into the power of marriage as spiritual friendship. The goal is to see something absolutely ravishing that God is making of the beloved. You can see, you see even now flashes of glory. You want to help your spouse become the person God wants him or her to be. Romance, sex, laughter, and plain fun are the byproducts of this process of sanctification, refinement, glorification. Those things are important, but they can't keep the marriage going through years and years of ordinary life. What keeps the marriage going is your commitment to your spouse's holiness. You're committed to his or her beauty. You're committed to his greatness and perfection. You're committed to her honesty and passion for the things of God. That's your job as a spouse, any lesser goal than that, any smaller purpose, and you're just playing at being married. So as reading this quote, it was pretty eye-opening for me and what I've learned when it comes to dating and finding a mate. The way I was raised to navigate dating and finding a marriage partner and possibly father to my future children, if that's meant to be, is finding somebody who you don't want to change at all because 
often we're told that people will never change like that saying you can't teach an old dog new tricks people are not going to change you can't go into a serious relationship expecting to change somebody expecting to fix them pretty much need to understand that what you get within the first two years of knowing somebody if you're seriously dating is pretty much what you're going to get after that's you you've seen given you spend enough time together what you see is what you get unless they're really good masters of deception so this is a different take of looking at marriage and seeing it as you're here to support the process of something that's already unfolding and being part of that process so instead of just seeing a marriage as this is for my benefit and this is to achieve my goals of partnership. It's also from the perspective of your role in helping with a person's transformation, which is already taking place and being able to see that transformation and support it as opposed to having a vision in your head of the transformation or the potential you see for somebody, but it may differ from a movement which is already taking hold. Viewing the purpose of marriage from this perspective is different from what we see in a lot of consumer culture, such as the me marriage and let me get my needs met marriage, which is important. But from what I understand here, that is not the main purpose. It's helpful to understand the purpose of something when we look at the history or the milieu that it arose from. So our next key idea that we'll talk about is that of the history of dating and marriage. The authors look at history and break it up into different eras to look at what the purpose of marriage and dating was during those times. And this is pretty similar to what we learned about in the book Singled Out, where the author talked about the history of marriage as well. So they start by looking at the 18th and 19th century, which is called the pre-enlightenment era. And during this time, purpose of marriage was that of duty, and embracing and carrying out one's social roles. And marriages were arranged with the goal of increasing or improving one's social status and financial security. Whereas in the 18th and 19th century, the pre-enlightenment era, marriages were mainly arranged. But then once we moved to the late 19th century, we had more of courtship happening. Um, they also called it calling, where a man would be invited in to spend time with the woman and by virtue would get to learn more about her family and the family would get to learn more about him. But once we enter the 20th century, which we call the modern dating era, this is when people started going out. So this is where family had less of a role to play in influencing the decision of whether to get married or not. And instead of the focus being on marital intents, it was mainly on going out and entertainment and having fun. Now we're in the 21st century, which is deemed hookup culture. We hear this notoriously referenced as Netflix and chill, friends with benefit. We hear about a lot of ghosting, lack of communication. So people are wanting what they want. Sometimes they want to have multiple dating partners. And instead of being upfront with the person they're seeing, it's considered to be fine to just date as many people as one can handle as long as a title is not being given. We also hear about side pieces as well. During these time frames, I'm not 100% sure when what we call the Enlightenment period takes place, but I imagine it's post 19th century. This is where the meaning of life becomes a really strong motivator of marriage, where 
there's this pursuit of individualization of freedom and personal fulfillment and so the purpose of marriage is to find emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization they make mention of the privatization of marriage and so marriage is removed from what's considered to be the public sphere and so there's less accountability for when somebody is dating another person it's harder to say this person is exclusively with this person because no longer are you only in the family's home but now you can go wherever you want and there's so many secrets happening so now we see that marriage is very idealistic in what's being sought. It's common for people to seek partners who are low maintenance and have low expectations of their partner wanting them to change. And they want the best out of their partners, their partners to be fun, to be smart, attractive, for both of them to share common interests and mainly for that person who they marry to support their personal goals, not ask them to change and not question or give them too much of a hassle about how they're currently living because we've heard that when you are with married with somebody i mean shirley mentioned this on an earlier episode based on a book that she was reading of how being married is like that tree in the room like they you're so close to somebody i've not been married but i've lived with people and i can only imagine take that up a notch to being married to somebody their guard is coming down so you're seeing all these aspects of them that regular people regular family do not get to see and if they do see it they don't have to be as entangled in it now that we've looked at the high level purpose of marriage and the history of dating and marriage let's look at the key idea of perceptions and expectations of marriage and potential marital partners and i found this to be the aspect of the book that I gained the most understanding from and it's going to be the largest section of our key ideas. What I learned here was that first and foremost it's important to have a balanced perspective of marriage. Tim states that it's important as a single to have balanced informed view of marriage otherwise they may over desire or under desire marriage. They speak about de-idolizing marriage because that's a key thing that we see in our society of idolizing things. So we idolize celebrities, we idolize status, we idolize money. We even idolize certain ways of living. For example, the career woman versus the woman who stays at home. We idolize being self-employed or an entrepreneur versus working a nine to five. So there's different forms of idolization in society and marriage is one of them. And so that's one of the goals of reading this book personally is to not over glorify and idolize marriage and hold it higher than it needs to be but at the same time not fearing and dismissing the role and importance of marriage in our overall society and spiritual health the quote which spoke to me here starts on page 108 and talks about de-idolizing marriage and when looking at multiple world religions shows that Christianity was actually a religion who states that it's okay to not get married. So the quote starts on page 108 and says, Stanley Hauerwas argues that Christianity was the very first religion that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. He writes, One clear difference between Christianity and Judaism and all other traditional religions is the former's entertainment of the idea of singleness as the paradigm way of life for its followers. 
Nearly all ancient religions and cultures made an absolute value of the family and of the bearing of children. There was no honor without family honor, and there was no real lasting significance or legacy without leaving heirs. Without children, you essentially vanished and you had no future. The main hope for the future then was to have children. In ancient cultures, long-term single adults were considered to be living a human life that was less than fully realized. But Christianity's founder, Jesus Christ, and leading theologian, St. Paul, were both single their entire lives. Single adults cannot be seen as somehow less fully formed or realized human beings than married persons because Jesus Christ, a single man, was the perfect man. Paul's assessment in 1 Corinthians 7 is that singleness is a good condition blessed by God, and in many circumstances, it is actually better than marriage. As a result of this revolutionary attitude, the early church did not pressure people to marry and institutionally supported poor widows so they did not have to remarry. Why did the early church have this attitude? The Christian gospel and hope of the future kingdom de-idolized marriage. There was no more radical act in that day and time than to live a life that did not produce heirs. Having children was the main way to achieve significance for an adult, since children would remember you. They also gave you security since they would care for you in your old age. Christians who remained single then were making the statement that our future is not guaranteed by the family, but by God. Single adult Christians were bearing testimony that God, not family, was their hope. God would guarantee their future, first by giving them their truest family, the church, so they never lacked for brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, in Christ. But ultimately, Christians' inheritance is nothing less than the fullness of the kingdom of God in the new heavens and new earth. Our was goes on to point out that Christian hope not only made it possible for singles to live fulfilled lives without spouse and children, but it also was an impetus for people to marry and have children and not be afraid to bring them into this dark world. For Christians do not place their hope in their children, but rather their children are a sign of their hope that God has not abandoned this world. Now this was an interesting perspective because as the season is about marriage and motherhood and figuring out if they're the right decisions for us. As I was reading that, I realized that that's partly why I think that I need to get married. One, to have children, and two, to be taken care of by those children in the future as a sort of, hey, kind of pay me back in a sense of security <laughs> that, okay, like, it's inevitable that we're going to get older and it's a blessing, but it's also a fear that some of us have because our health will likely decline some slower than others depending on how we take care of ourselves and the different things that happen to us in life but right there it's listed that one of the reasons to get married was to have the protection of future children but then here we're seeing when it comes to marriage that should not be a reason for marriage that can be a benefit of the marriage but it shouldn't be the main reason for the marriage we also hear that theme again of not being able to mature fully or be seen as a fully mature individual unless one is married. And we heard that in the singled out episode as well. But then we have these models of people in history who they were not married, but they were leaders in their own right. And they did not have to have children nor get married to have a major impact on our world as it is now. 
So in addition to having a balanced perspective on the purpose of marriage and the roles that each player plays when it comes to marriage is the understanding that it is okay to be single. Because oftentimes I know I feel and clients I speak with, friends I talk to feel this pressure that it's not okay to be single. We talked about this as well, this whole something must be fundamentally wrong with you. So having that understanding provides a little bit of relief to the pressure that can be laid on thick through society, especially as you reach a certain age of the pressure to get married and the additional pressure to have children. It's all about what is your guiding compass and who is telling you what. And the scriptures are telling you that it's okay, you're not less than and, you know, I still have a purpose for you regardless. It's It provides a sense of relief when the mass message you're receiving is that something's wrong with you and you're running out of time and you got to get married now, you got to have children soon, you're running out of time, you're running out of time, you're running out of time. Another lesson from the topic of perceptions and expectations of marriage and marital partners is the understanding that marriage will not fill the void that can only be filled through, we may call it spirituality, we may call it the relationship with God. And sometimes people may look to marriage and their marital partner to fill this void, but the void, it's, it's impossible for that source to fill that void. Because as humans, none of us are perfect and we are bound to disappoint each other, some more than others. But it's that reminder that if you're planning to get married, if you're going to go into marriage to manage that expectation of how much the marriage is going to be able to do for that spiritual void. And I'd like to share two quotes to expand on that. The first quote talks about the goodness of being single. And this is on page 112. And it states, even the best marriage cannot by itself fill the void in our souls left by God. Without a deeply fulfilling love relationship with Christ now and hope in a perfect love relationship with him in the future, married Christians will put too much pressure on their marriage to fulfill them and that will always create pathology in their lives. But singles too must see the penultimate status of marriage. If single Christians don't develop a deeply fulfilling love relationship with Jesus, they will put too much pressure on their dream of marriage and that will create pathology in their lives as well. However, if singles learn to rest in and rejoice in their marriage to Christ, that means they will be able to handle single life without a devastating sense of being unfulfilled and unformed. And they might as well tackle this spiritual project right away. Why? Because the same idolatry of marriage that is distorting their single lives will eventually distort their married lives if they find a partner. So there's no reason to wait. Demote marriage and family in your heart. Put God first and begin to enjoy the goodness of the single life. This reminded me of that idea of if you're spiritually void and you're seeking a marital partner to fill that void, it's not enough that disappointment is going to show itself in many ways. So it's important to make sure that if you have a need, that you're meeting that need using something that can actually meet that need instead of a substitute for it. 
So the other quote that expands on the important topic of what expectations can be met in marriage talks about love economics and what we are actually able to provide and how that affects our relationships with each other. So this starts on location 753 and states, Without the help of the Spirit, without a continual refilling of your soul's tank with the glory and love of the Lord, such submission to the interests of the other is virtually impossible to accomplish for any length of time without becoming resentful. Tim calls this love economics. You can only afford to be generous if you actually have some money in the bank to give. In the same way, if your only source of love and meaning is your spouse, then anytime he or she fails you, it will not just cause grief, but a psychological cataclysm. If, however, you know something of the work of the Spirit in your life, you have enough love in the bank to be generous to your spouse, even when you are not getting much affection or kindness at the moment. This speaks to that idea of expecting somebody to always be available to us, emotionally available to us, but as humans, we go through different life situations. This can affect our mood. Sometimes people deal with anxiety and depression, which affects their ability to be there for somebody else. Maybe you have needs, but your partner is not able to meet them at the right time. Well, what are you going to do in that circumstance? If your only source of happiness and support and love is a spouse, what are you going to do when they get to the point where they just are not able to be there for you? So it's important to realize that certain voids can only be filled by certain sources. The last quote I'd like to share with you from the key idea of perception and expectations in, our, in marital partners and marriage is understanding that when we're in the dating stage, we're really just seeing what's on the surface. And my understanding is that helps us know whether to run from real red flags. Like if you see red flags and you choose to stay, hopefully there's hope of that person changing. But We've noticed that even when red flags are not present at those stage and then they become present later, the hopes of them changing those things are very slim unless they really see the value in doing so and taking the initiative to take them seriously. Otherwise, a lot of things will be revealed after actually getting married. So the quote starts on page 8 and says, When you first fall in love, you think you love the person, but you don't really. You can't know who the person is right away. That takes years. You actually love your idea of the person, and that is always, at first, one-dimensional and somewhat mistaken. But not only do you not know the other person, but the other person does not really know you. You have to put on your best face, often quite literally. There are things about yourself that you're ashamed of or afraid of, but you don't let the other person see your flaws. And of course, you cannot show your partner those parts of your character that you cannot see yourself and which will only be revealed to you in the course of the marriage. There's an emotional high that comes to us when someone thinks we're so wonderful and beautiful, and that is part of what fuels the early passion and electricity of falling in love. But the problem is, and you may be semi-consciously aware of this, the person doesn't really know you and therefore doesn't really love you, not yet at least. What you think of as being head over heels in love is in large part a gust of ego gratification, but it's nothing like the profound satisfaction of being known and loved. When over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. 
To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Now, the last key ideal will focus on the role of sex in a marital relationship. And the aspects of what was learned on this topic looked at the attitudes towards sex in general and the purpose of sex when it comes to being within the marriage and then some thoughts on cohabitation. So the authors shared three key attitudes that there are about sex in general. So the first one is that we have a natural, unavoidable appetite for sex, similar to how we do for food, how we do for sleep. Then a second perspective is that sex is degrading, it's dirty, and it's just like a lower level function of us and it's separate from our higher, more glorious aspects of ourselves. The third attitude of sex is that it's a form of self-expression and a way to be yourself and to find yourself. So when it comes to the first attitude that it's natural and unavoidable, authors mention that, yes, that we do have a sex drive, but the idea that just because it's natural doesn't mean that it doesn't require guidance because it doesn't just affect our physical aspect of ourself. It also affects other parts of ourself, like our heart and our spirit. They also mentioned that sometimes these drives for natural things, for example, the need for food and for sleep, may be mismatched from what our body actually needs. For example, overeating. So sometimes there's factors involved with overeating. So we eat more than our body actually requires. And so this can lead to things such as obesity and can be influenced by things such as food addiction and certain ingredients in our foods which affect our neurology and also affect our taste for certain things. So there needs to be guidance with this drive even though it's natural. When it comes to the attitude about sex being a necessary evil in order to keep pumping out humans so that we have humanity, this is often one that gets connected to just the overall attitude of sex when it comes to religion and Christianity. But in the book, they debunk this more and show that sex is not viewed as disgusting in religion. It's just that sex is powerful and it can affect us. And we do need to realize the potential byproducts of sex, whether we're doing it intentionally or not, there are going to be consequences, positive and negative, that can happen as a result of engaging in sexual behavior. Another challenge when it comes to sex is that our world is so hyper about sex. You see it so much in advertising and I just think back to my early 20s. Everything I was bombarded with and I, you just, you just think that to be attractive in life you have to be sexually attractive. In order to keep somebody's attention you have to engage in this and we need to also see the world that we're living in and the ideas and what's being promoted, but also look at how's it affecting people on an individual level? How's it affecting people in their relationships? So there's so many things that can be said about this topic, which go far beyond just what we've talked about here when it comes to marriage. But it was interesting to hear about the dominant attitudes towards sex. That affects the expectations that somebody is bringing to their partner, to their spouse in a marriage and even in the dating stage. Now, speaking of the dating stage, the authors also talk about cohabitation and basically say that the, the goal with 
cohabitation with sexual partners are to avoid being single and lonely or married and bored. Sometimes people enter that kind of arrangement for someone better who they may feel is worthy of getting married too. And so of course this is another topic that we could talk about even more detail, but the understanding here is that marriage is, it's a statement of saying I choose to be with this one person and I choose to say vows. So they talk more about the importance of making it legal and why marriage is not just a piece of paper. So the last aspect of sex and marriage is looking at the purpose of sex in marriage. And it's mentioned here that the purpose of marriage is to deepen the union between the spouses and to renew their commitment to each other. To expand on that, here are two quotes. The first starting on page 137, which states, According to the Bible, marriage is essentially a covenant. Why is the binding promise of future love so crucial for creating deep, lasting passion? Christian ethicist Lewis Smedes wrote an article that Tim read as a young pastor and a still new husband. It helped him enormously as both a counselor and a spouse. It's called Controlling the Unpredictable, the Power of Promising. First, he locates the very basis of our identity in the power of promising. Some people ask who they are and expect their feelings to tell them, but feelings are flickering flames that fade after every fitful stimulus. Some people ask who they are and expect their achievements to tell them, but the things we accomplish always leave a core of character unrevealed. Some people ask who they are and expect visions of their ideal self to tell them, but our visions can only tell us what we want to be, not what we are. Who are we? Smeets answers that we are largely who we become through making wise promises and keeping them. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. It's your covenant renewal service. To add, starting on page 140, if sex is a method that God invented to do whole life entrustment and self-giving, it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when used wrongly. Unless you deliberately disable it, or through practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you are literally physically joined. In the midst of sexual passion, you naturally want to say extravagant things such as, I'll always love you. Even if you are not legally married, you may find yourself very quickly feeling marriage-like ties, feeling that the other person has obligations to you, but that other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility even to call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but are not married. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves. Therefore, if you have sex outside marriage, you will have to steel yourself against sex's power to soften your heart toward another person and make you more trusting. The problem is that, eventually, sex will lose its covenant-making power for you, even if you one day do get married. Ironically then, sex outside of marriage eventually works backwards, making you less able to commit and trust another person. So there we have it, more of an expansion about 
the purpose of sex and how it can affect how we relate to one another and can potentially have consequences in how we actually perceive a relationship with a person, but also have consequences in future relationships as well. Now, there's so much going on through my head after reading this itself. And on top of that, there are key takeaways to further think about. So the key takeaways in a nutshell were number one, taking responsibility for our individual selfishness and wounds. Number two, taking responsibility for filling the God-sized void in our lives. Number three, looking at love as an action. And number four, which is really personal to me, marrying somebody from your own faith. So number one, taking responsibility for our own selfishness and woundedness. The authors refer to woundedness as compounded attitudes and emotions of self-doubt, guilt, resentment, and disillusionment, and that we bring them into the marriage because we are so self-absorbed. So this can lead to conflicts and tensions in the marriage because the person that you get married to may do things to bring them to the surface. And so when these emotions are stirred up, we have memories of whatever triggered those things to happen. And so we revert to behaviors that are not very adaptive in the current situation and ways of relating to our partner and causing more stress and issues within the relationship. Instead of us seeing them for what it is, we get to the point of minimizing our selfishness, kind of like that idea of woe is me, like look at what I dealt with, this is why I am the way that I am. Instead of taking responsibility for and healing them, we use them as justification. So that was a key takeaway, uh, personally of something to work on, because I feel like when you're able to heal yourself of certain issues, you're able to see things differently. And a big way that this has helped me in my own life is learning about boundaries. I was part of a book club and we talked about the book Boundaries and it helped me to see that I had poor boundaries in multiple relationships, but in particular with a certain person who I felt very strongly towards them. I let them walk all over me and it was terrifying for me to put boundaries in place. There were so many fears that if they were to happen, it would just show me that, well, this is the truth of the relationship. But then it helped me to see that in other relationships and in other arenas, such as work. It helped me to see my motivations in certain roles that I play. So everybody's responsible for their own healing and not to wait until getting into a relationship for those things to be revealed. I don't think it's fair to that future spouse on both ends where we are each responsible for ourselves and for healing ourselves. And our spouses can be people who help us on that, as mentioned before, to help us become our most glorified self, but they're not completely responsible for it. When it comes to talking about the key takeaway of filling the God-sized void, we talked about that extensively earlier in this episode, but it was a key takeaway because once again, we need to be responsible for seeing what our needs are and how to meet them. And there are just certain methods and people who are not going to be able to meet certain needs that we have. So it's a big takeaway because if going into a marriage relationship, which has a high level of demand, and not managing expectations beforehand and within, I think that's going to lead to a disaster. And so really being realistic about what needs need to be met and the ways to go about meeting them to ensure that it's realistic. In terms of love being action and not always how we feel, the authors talk about affairs. 
and how because they can feel so intense, they can be identified as love. Of course, they're going to feel like that because there's these elements and affairs that you wouldn't find in a marriage, uh, such as this need to constantly impress and the fact that it can be so risky, especially if people are fearful of being caught by their spouse. So this led to the topic of love currency, which is that ability to speak the language of love. And so you may have heard of the five love languages by the author Gary Chapman, and we're also going to be discussing a book written by him later on in the season. It won't be the love languages, but it also touches on the love languages. And so he talks about the importance of connecting with one's spouse in the language that they're most receptive to. We all have languages that we understand the most, just like there's so many languages that people speak. You can be telling me something, and if I don't understand the language that you're telling me it in, it's not going to mean much of anything to me. I will try to look for clues at the expression that you're telling me in. I'll try to look at other people's reactions. Like, are they laughing? Are they shocked? Um, and any other clues you'll give me. But if I don't understand, then it's hard for me to receive it. And so the same when it comes to marriage is using that love currency to really understand the spouse, the partner, and speak their language, essentially do things in the way that they're most receptive. And that's actions. Now, the last key takeaway that was really personal to me is that of the advice to marry somebody from your own faith. And I'll expand with a quote that starts on page 123. So many think it's very narrow-minded indeed to discourage christians from marrying outside of their faith but there are strong reasons for this biblical rule if your partner doesn't share your christian faith then he or she doesn't truly understand it as you do from the inside and if jesus is central to you then that means that your partner doesn't truly understand you he or she doesn't understand the mainspring of your life the ground motive of all you do no one can perfectly know your spouse before you marry but when two people marry who have a common faith in Christ, each one knows something significant about the other's fundamental motivations and views of life. If, however, you marry someone who doesn't share your most deeply held and core beliefs, then you will repeatedly make decisions that your partner won't be able to fathom at all. That part of your life, and it is the most important part, will forever be opaque and mysterious to your spouse. The essence of intimacy in marriage is that finally you have someone who will eventually come to understand you and accept you as you are. Your spouse should be someone you don't have to hide from or always be spinning. It should be someone who gets you. But if the person is not a believer, he or she can't understand your very essence and heart. If you do marry someone who does not share your faith, then there are only two ways to proceed. One is that you will more and more have to lose your transparency. In the normal healthy Christian life, you relate Christ and the gospel to everything. You will think of Christ when watching a movie. You will base decisions on Christian principles. You will think about what you read in the Bible that day. But if you're natural and transparent about all these thoughts, your partner will find it at least tedious or annoying and even offensive. He or she will say, I had no idea you were this overboard about your faith. You will just have to hide it all. The other worst possibility is that you move Christ out of a central place in your consciousness. You will have to let your heart's ardor for Christ cool. You will have to deliberately not think about how your Christian commitment relates to every area of your life. You will demote 
Christ in your mind and heart, because if you feel him central, you will feel isolated from your spouse. So this point was really personal because it had me thinking about what is most important in life. When it comes to dating, there are so many great people that you can meet, but we may not all share the same core ways of being and navigating our life. What is your goal? Is your goal to have a strong marriage based on what is being shared here? Or are you wanting a superficial marriage? Are you going to want something that is likely to last or something where you have to hide yourself, where you can't feel free to be who you are at your most essential level? So that was a lot of food for thought. So some thoughts about what's next for the podcast is looking some more at theology and religion and the afterlife. Another possible topic is that of sexuality, looking at the power and influence of sex and how it affects how we relate to ourselves and to others, for example, in relationships such as marriage. Now, lastly, I'd like to close with a quote from the Bible scripture, which is what always has been my understanding of love, and I felt it would be suitable to end this episode with. The version of the Bible that I'm reading from is the New Living Translation, and the scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Freedom Finders, remember to honor your time, honor your energy, and see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Teach Me Freedom podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it beneficial. Feel free to reach out to us at teachmefreedom2020 at gmail.com. And if you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the show on your favorite platform for streaming content. Feel free to comment and leave a four or five star review if you feel so inclined. Connect with you next time.